Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Jason Palmer, science correspondent, and I'm joined today by Miranda Johnson, our environment correspondent, and Oliver Morton, our essays and briefings editor. In this episode, we'll look back at the COP21 climate talks uh, in Paris. Oliver and Miranda, you were both there. I have many, many questions. Um, but let me start with uh, the, the really basic one. We've seen a lot of these talks come and go. There was a lot of talk before the, the meeting about how this is a fundamentally different process. It was uh, the, the promises were made earlier and so on. Here on the other end of it, has it been different? Is it any different this time? Yeah, I'd say it absolutely is because in previous years, we've come together. Uh, For example, in 2009 in Copenhagen, we tried to get a deal uh, to curb carbon emissions. Nothing came out of it. After that, um, other sort of climate UN meetings, they essentially agreed to at some point agree on something. And so this is actually the culmination of many years of climate diplomacy. And finally, we do have a deal that is going to uh, tackle Um, carbon emissions. But cleverly, it doesn't tell countries exactly how they have to do it. It just says that they have to have domestic policies that do so in some way. Now, there's a there's a problem to that cleverness, uh, which is not which has not escaped many observers, indeed, any observers or indeed any of the participants, which is that by asking countries to voluntarily describe what they think they're capable of doing and are willing to do, what you get is a level of ambition that is much lower than when you ask all the countries collectively what they think ought to be done. So when it comes to the what ought to be done, the new Paris Agreement says that the temperature ought to be kept well below 2 degrees Celsius and ideally towards 1.5. If you add up the things that the countries have promised to do, they don't put you on a track for anything like as ambitious a course of action as that. So there is there's this talk of 1.5 degrees now, but and even, even 2 degrees, we've, we've been been talking for a very long time about being pretty well out of reach by now. Isn't that right? Yeah. And actually, the idea of having a sort of a set temperature limit is problematic in itself. Different different regions of the world warm at different rates. So difficult scientifically to which countries where or you know what body should deem oh yes you know two celsius of warming that's fine but anything more that's not fine obviously we've now seen consensus that actually a limit of climate policy which previously was you know two celsius countries agreed to that has now been drawn down because further scientific research has shown that it's not safe and actually perhaps we do want to try and limit warming more to 1.5 celsius but actually perhaps a noble ambition, but we're already um, experiencing about one degree Celsius of warming above pre-industrial temperatures currently, and things aren't looking good. If we were really serious about trying to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, you'd have to peak global emissions before 2030, and then essentially see them decline almost entirely not that long after 2050. So it's a very big, nigh-impossible ask. When you say we there, that's actually one of the one of the real issues and one of one of the inspiring things, one of the frustrating things about watching something like 
Paris. There isn't really a, a we there to do this. It's not as though if Paris had agreed a two-degree limit, Paris would then have had the power to enforce a two-degree limit. It's not like there's any way for international bodies to enforce on nations how they run their economies at the level of, of their energy policy. You can't do more than have the nations bring forward policies. And one thing that's interesting about this agreement is that the fact that all nations are now urge to bring forward policies of some sort, and all policies are regularly reviewed with an eye to making them stronger. There's now room for a sort of like cooperative race moving towards ever more ambitious goals. At the same time, the frustration is that we do all know that these goals are not sufficient to the task of coming in within two degrees. And it's not entirely clear that any such, even if you take a very optimistic view of the increasing pace of ambition under this like accelerating process, it's a tough belief that we'll come in much below two degrees unless it turns out that the climate does us some favours and is not quite as sensitive to greenhouse gases as we think. Well, this is, this is why I'm struggling to understand why I should take seriously the headlines of it, a historic pact and so on. There's a lot of setting these goals that might well be unreachable. You know, and you, you take these things to the meetings, you take them home to your electorate and you say, we're going to try to do this, but then, well, that might not be done. And then there's the, the hedging language in the, in the agreements and the shall versus the should that was the major sticking point. All of it still looks like stuff that can be backed off from. I just wonder why people seem to be so excited about this one this time. Well, agreements can be backed off from, and that's one of the things about international agreements. It's also not uncommon for agreements to have goals, long-term goals, that people do not expect to see realised, certainly until the long term, maybe not in the long term. So, you know, the Non-Proliferation Treaty on Nuclear Arms talks about complete disarmament. No one really thinks that's happening in the near term. And just to come in sort of on your, your point about language, Jason, for example, before these Paris talks, countries were rather tenuously invited to submit pledges saying what they were prepared to cut back on ahead of them. And actually, you know, perhaps a year before the talks, no one was really sure if countries were actually going to do that, you know, if, if they were going to follow through. And about 187 of them now have and have come in with these voluntary offers. So your point about this kind of language is interesting and, and sort of coming back to the ratchet mechanism that Ollie was talking about, these five yearly reviews where hopefully countries' pledges will be ratcheted up, we'll see an increase in them. They've actually been, I think the wording is the deal encourages them and urges them to come back to the table with something stronger. Again, just because it happened to work in the past doesn't necessarily mean it worked in the future. But that sort of what seems like floaty language did at least work once before. And as people who work with language, uh, like those of us around these mics, it is actually kind of remarkable to see people caring so much about interesting little minutiae of language. And also to see a document that's sort of like almost clean of literals, but um, at about 27 pages long and have people sort of like scrubbing it down for language and legality. It's a real amount of, the, of sort of like the precision that people are capable of. So yes, a lot of the language looks strange and maybe even arch in places. But that's a piece, not an article. It's a, that, that, that's a document which has been really precisely fashioned. I, I was struck, I was coming back on the Eurostar and I was thinking, 
precision engineering in language is not something we're as used to as precision engineering in engineering. And it is kind of weird to watch something like that happen. Now, that doesn't mean that this is an agreement that, you know, will stay on the rails and go at 186 miles an hour or whatever the hell it is the Eurostar does. But it does mean that it is quite an impressive achievement to get 196 nations to agree on anything and to get them to agree on something that has genuine provisions about climate adaptation, about finance, about mechanisms for dealing with loss and damage, which means, among other things, refugees, about new market mechanisms. There's a lot of very interesting stuff in this thing that, again, 196 countries agree to. And it's not just the lowest common denominator. And also, all language is subject to interpretation. And in particular, it may come down to political peer pressure. You know, if certain big polluters decide that, yeah, this language and this agreement is robust, we're going to act on it, then the others may follow suit. That's what we saw before. Well, coming back to you, you mentioned finance and passing, Ollie. In, in the precision engineering of the document, there's the conspicuous absence of the word reparations. There's always much talk about the money around these things, not so much about loss and damages and the like this time. Well, there was absolutely never going to be, I don't think, mention of you know words such as compensation, you know, liabilities, reparations, um, those kinds of terms. Uh, it was a red line for many um, of, of the richest countries participating. They absolutely did not to be on the hook. To be absolutely clear, mention of liability and compensation in the document is very firmly presented, uh, pre- prefaced with the word not, no, <laughs> yes. that sort of thing. So the agreement, which is the sort of like treaty-like thing, which comes out of this, just talks about ways of addressing loss and damage. The decision, which is a diplomatically technical different thing that happens, says we're not talking reparation, we're not talking compensation, we're not talking liability. And this was, among other things, a very strong red line for the United States, which believes itself to live in a fairly litigious world. One wonders why. Issues of compensation and, and liability are interesting to talk about. And here we're really focusing on, despite best efforts that are made as a result of an agreement in Paris and domestic policies that are implemented, there are going to be countries, particularly some smaller, poorer states that suffer enormously because of climate change, um, flooding or water stress, um, things like that. And so there's a question, who should try and help them? How much should they pay for sort of damage that is already locked in? And how should that be organised? And there's a sort of like non-coincidental link, of course, between the countries which have a lot of money and the countries which have historically emitted a lot more of the greenhouse gases because that's what being an industrialised nation is all about. And so the question of compensation or liability is one that naturally feeds into the question of developed and developing countries. And that's one of the underscoring tensions that goes on throughout these debates. But what was at least agreed is that previously we've seen and heard this $100 billion climate finance, some being tossed around, and now $100 billion a year by 2020 has to be found to be given to poor countries that need it to deal with the effects of climate change. The New Deal uh, now says that that is a flaw, essentially. That's floor with an R, I gather. Yes, yes, not, not a W. Not a problematic thing, <laughs> a good thing, just it, the, smallest, it, it, the smallest thing. It's something to build up from. And also, interestingly, the new agreement will require rich countries to offer poorer ones 
a sense of what money is coming their way every other year. And this will all stay in place until 2025. But more to the point, more on the financing point, Miranda, you're, you're minded to think that this whole agreement sends a, a particular signal to those who would invest in carbon-intensive industries and the like. Do you think the tide has really finally turned? Do you think this will make a difference? This is an incredibly difficult question. Um, we've seen interesting policy papers, academic papers, scientific papers in recent months on this. Thanks to the agreement, it does now look a little bit more risky to put your money into a high carbon project, perhaps a large new coal plant, and to lock your money in there now for you know a number of decades. That does look in greater doubt. There are questions of fiduciary duty and whether there will be a shift in, for example, pension funds that have longer horizons, whether actually they should start taking into consideration the kind of world that their clients want to live in in 20, 30 years' time, as opposed to just considering, you know, shorter term, where can we make quick profit? And at the moment, the answer is, you know, absolutely, certainly still still in oil companies. So there is a signal, but it's going to be very difficult to determine what that is really until we've seen what the effects of national pledges are going to be on policy. Uh, One of the strongest elements of the agreement, I think, does back up a kind of financial signal, which is that essentially we are aiming to be in a world that is uh, carbon neutral, uh, net net zero emissions after 2050, which means that sort of as much greenhouse gas is going to be admitted, but it's also as much as going to be sequestered in some way. So it's not just about slowing it down, it's also removing some. It's about balancing it out. Well, it's an interesting question, this one, because uh, it's almost always going to be more difficult to take greenhouse gas out of the atmosphere than to stop it going in in the first place. And we do have this worry among many people, among many scientists who look at this, that people are assuming, because it is possible to imagine ways to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, that these will in fact be done. And there is a worry that this encourages a mindset in which people don't feel the urgency about reducing emissions now because we're now in a situation where if we take two degrees or 1.5 degrees remotely seriously, at some point, it's not just that you're going to have to go to a, to a net balanced carbon economy. At some point, you're going to have to start sucking stuff out of the atmosphere. So, for instance, you notice that the extremely successful activist organization, which you know, has had quite a lot of effect on, on the ambition of these talks, 350.org. The 350 in 350.org refers to 350 parts per million, which is the carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere that that organization thinks is a really good one. Now, the problem with 350 is that it's less than 400. And that's the level in parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere today. And the idea that we're going to be able to reduce emissions enough that we're not at some point going to see 440, 450 is very, very fanciful. I think we'll probably more likely see 500, at which point you have to start taking an awful lot of carbon out of the atmosphere. And although there are theoretical ways to do that, the one that's talked about most is to grow biomass and then burn it in power plants and put the carbon dioxide um, from those power plants underground. So carbon dioxide comes out of the atmosphere, into the plants, take the plants to the furnace, burn the plants, take the carbon dioxide, put it into the ground. So carbon dioxide out of atmosphere into ground. The problem with this is that you need hellaciously large 
plantations to do it on anything like the sort of scale that can move you from a 450 parts per million world to a 350 parts per million world. If you want to take one part, this very, very rough and ready calculation, but if you want to take one part per million of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere in a year, that requires you to have a plantation twice the size of Argentina, not twice the size of Argentina's forests, twice the size of Argentina. There is a real worry that people are making assumptions about how you might do this, but they're not actually thinking through how very difficult those things would be to do. So we should be glad that there is a concentration of political will and progress is being made and people are making voluntary promises that seem to help, but it still all kind of looks a little sketchy. Yeah, it's better to have you know something than nothing. And it is actually a stronger deal than we were expecting. And in some ways, the sort of spurious 1.5 Celsius uh, inclusion signals that in a way weren't necessarily expecting that to sneak in at all. So we're in a slightly better position than could have been predicted. I quite agree with Miranda on that. I mean, this has been a, a more ambitious agreement than one would have expected. And on in general, the, my preference for something over nothing, the only caveat there is that if by having something you think you have enough, then you are under a misapprehension. And one of the things that I think is interesting about the Paris process, but also frightening about the Paris process, is that it requires not that it's the end, but that it's the beginning, not that it's the last push, but that it's the first step up. And it's very possible to imagine people saying, oh, right, we've done this, then okay, we'll we'll more or less live with these agreements we've made now, but we're not going to really push forward. And, you know, that's good enough for my term of office. And so if if you get the impression that this is all over, then that could be a slightly worrying impression. If you get the impression that we now actually have a process that can go on and that can address not only mitigation but also adaptation because given the relative modesty of the aims in mitigation and reducing carbon dioxide emissions, one thing we know is that we're going to need a lot of adaptation. As long as you understand that this process is just beginning, then this is definitely good. If you think that this is the whole thing, then you are misleading yourself. I'd completely agree with that and... um it's sort of as though, you know, we've built a car, we've built a slightly better car than we thought we were going to build. But along the way, it's going to need, you know, new tyres, it's going to need to switch from oil to a battery. But we know roughly where we're going now. Well, we know where we're going. And what seems clear is that we're going to be discussing this on Babbage far into the future. Thank you very much for that, Oliver, uh, Miranda. But I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. If you, the audience, have anything to say about this week's show, you can find us at EconSciTech on Twitter and on Facebook at The Economist. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, visit Economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.